Welcome to the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Casey. So how are you planning for life after full-time work? It's easy to put off, and some people find it very tempting to say, well, I'll just wing it. But you can be much more intentional. One of the approaches I'm trained in is Designing Your Life, created by Bill Burnett and Dave Evans at Stanford. It applies the principles of design thinking to life planning, and it's very helpful for people at all ages and all stages. But today's conversation is with another esteemed designer, and she's written a new book titled Design the Long Life You'll Love. Aisha Bursal was named one of Fast Company's most creative people. In addition to her new book, Design the Long Life You'll Love, she's also the author of Design the Life You Love, a step-by-step guide to building a meaningful future. On the Thinker's 50 shortlist for talent, she gives lectures on design the organization you love to corporations. She also writes a weekly post on innovation for Inc.com. For years, she's designed award-winning products and systems for Fortune 100 and 500 companies, including Amazon, Colgate Palmolive, Herman Miller, GE, IKEA, the Scan Foundation, Staples, and Toyota. She's the recipient of numerous awards, including Interior Design Best of Year Award, multiple IDA Industrial Design Excellence Awards, and Best of Neocon Gold Awards, Young Designers Award from the Brooklyn Museum of Art, and the Athena Award for Excellence in Furniture Design from Rhode Island School of Design. Her work can be found in the permanent collections of the Museum of Modern Art, Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum, and the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Born in Izmir, Turkey, she came to the U.S. on a Fulbright scholarship and got her master's degree at Pratt Institute in New York. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here, Joe. So let's start with design thinking. What's design thinking and what led you to apply it to life design? That's a great point of starting. It's Design thinking is creative problem solving in a nutshell. And what led me to apply it to my life was many, many years ago, I was part of a group of women CEOs and we were asked to define our life's mission in one sentence. And I said in the moment, and I don't know why I said it, I said, my mission in life is to design the life I love. And then eventually that's what I ended up doing because I developed a design thinking process that I called deconstruction, reconstruction. And then the two things came together and I remembered, hold on one second, our life is our biggest project. It's like a design project full of challenges and criteria, things that we want and we need. And what if I apply my process to it? And it started as an experiment. And so what does it take, in your opinion, to design for a long life? Optimism. And that's what I saw. So we did this year-long research with people who were 65 and older, all the way to 90 plus. And we asked them to come and design their life with us. And the one thing across the board that I saw in everybody was optimism. And nobody said to us, even the people who were in their 90s, nobody said, aren't you a little late? They were all like, yes, I'm here to design my life. That's the idea. (laughs) So how can people learn to think like a designer? So thinking like a designer is, in my mind, using design principles. So 
it's thinking with empathy, uh, being able to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes. But when it comes to designing our life, it also means having empathy for ourselves, which is important. Holistic thinking, or which really means big picture thinking, seeing the big picture. And when you see the big picture, you see these dots that you might want to connect in new and different ways. You can gather inspiration from different places. It's also asking what if questions, because as soon as you say what if, it opens up your mind to possibilities. And then collaboration, which also is a great way of opening up your mind to different ideas, different expertise. And, and you know, when you're a designer, you can't do anything by yourself. You always need a client, a manufacturer, you need researchers and marketers and engineers. So we're very used to collaboration. And I think that also works for our life where we can collaborate. And then optimism again. And optimism is important because when you think that, okay, we have problems, but the optimism makes us think that no matter how hard the problem, we can come up with a better solution and that energizes us. And that's really what you want to do when you're thinking like a designer. You mentioned your process of deconstruction and reconstruction. What's involved in deconstructing your life and reconstructing it? Yeah, <laughs> I think it's exactly what it sounds like. Deconstructing, and a lot of people know what deconstruction is. You take the whole apart to see what it's made up of. And then reconstruction, reconstruction is making sure that you put it back together. So I find, and I see this in a lot of places, in articles I read, in books, in interviews, people love to deconstruct. You can deconstruct a political party. You can deconstruct diets. You can deconstruct anything. But very few people talk about, hey, you need to reconstruct it. So <laughs> you need to reconstruct it. And that's really the idea is when you break something apart, you see what something is made up of and you realize, oh, I can play with these parts. I can change them. I can replace them. I can combine them in new and different ways. And then you can reconstruct it, putting it together in a new way. And you can create different permutations. So one problem has many, many solutions. And if you come up with different permutations or different combinations of putting it back together, then you have the freedom to choose which one of these excites you, seem to be the best solution, give you the most energy. You have a lot of stories and examples in your books about people who have done this in your workshops. What's one story you could share of how someone put that process to work and, and what was it like for them? There are many examples, but my favorite example is Marshall Goldsmith. And Marshall came to, so Marshall is known as the world's number one leadership coach. And he came to one of my workshops. In fact, when my first book came out, Marshall said to me, why don't you do a workshop and I'll invite all my friends so that we can promote your book? So the idea was him helping me. And then, you know, Marshall has a lot of friends. So 70 people showed up, seven zero. And, but Marshall also came. And in the workshop, he deconstructed his life. 
And one of my questions that I ask everyone is, who are your heroes? And he said, my heroes are people like Peter Drucker, Francis Hasselbein, Alan Mulally, Buddha. And I said, well, what is it about them? And he said, they taught me everything I know for free. And then I said, well, Marshall, that's what's important to you. That's what you value. That's why you see that in your heroes. And I think a lightning bulb went off in his head. And then I, I said to Marshall, what would you do to be more like your heroes? He said, I'm going to teach everything I know to other people for free. And that became the beginning of Marshall Goldsmith's 100 Coaches. So it's a beautiful example. And that became his legacy project. He's helped so many people. I happen to be one of them. Spent a half day with him at his home in San Diego when he lived there when I first was considering becoming an executive coach. So he he's helped so many people. It's a great, great story. So I appreciate that. So when people approach a life transition, purpose often becomes a focal point. What's the difference in your view between a ready-made purpose that they may be moving away from and a self-made purpose that they may come to discover? Thank you. I love that question. Thank you for bringing that up because our purpose gives our life meaning. And when we did the research on aging, and I wrote my book, Design the Long Life You Love, one of the things that I did was map out long life. And I mapped out purpose across, like from zero to 90 plus. And what I realized is the first half of our life, we have a lot of structures, what I call ready-made purpose. And it could be school, it could be work, it could be family, it could be hobbies. These social structures that give us a sense of, our sense of meaning. But somewhere in midlife, and we call this midlife crisis, those things, you've, we've accomplished a lot of those ready-made purposes. And we start asking ourselves, myself included, what's the meaning of my life now? And it's at a time when if we have kids, maybe our kids are leaving the house, maybe we're retiring from one job or we're looking for a change. Or, and that's when we realize we need some self-made purpose, something that comes from inside, from within, not from the outside. And it's no surprise that this goes hand in hand with the wisdom that comes from our life experiences, and we're ready for it. And that's when we think about self-made purpose. And self-made purpose simply comes from activities like creativity and learning or teaching. I just gave the example of Marshall. Him teaching others gives him an incredible sense of meaning, right? Standing up for what you believe. These, these are all things that are the um, doors to self-made purpose. There were so many things that jumped out to me and stood out to me in reading both your books. One of them was I noticed that you also encouraged people to know what to avoid going forward. Could you have a few examples of what people have called out to avoid? It's really important to know what to avoid, because if we are intentional about those things, we can make time and space for things we love. And that's why I want to remind people, it's not just only about things you want to include, it's also about things you want to get rid of. And so the things that people talk about 
three that came to my mind. One is they say yes to too many things. So they want to learn to say no. And what's good about that is if you can say no to things, you're making time for other things, for new things, maybe things that are important to you. So one is avoid saying yes to everything. And the other thing that came from our research was toxic friends, especially older people. We're very clear about saying no to toxic friends and saying, I don't have time for this. So I thought that that was really interesting. And then the third one is living life, not being true to yourself. And this comes from some research that was done with people who were dying about their wishes, you know, wish things that they wish they had done. And Joe, the number one thing is I wish I had lived a life true to myself and listened less to other people or what other people expect of me. So that that also comes up in our research. And frankly, designing your life or designing your long life is all about being true to yourself. In fact, I'm doing a retreat about design the honest life you love with my friend Ron Carucci, which is you know, really about this. So as you mentioned, design takes creativity, and that often involves warming up. What are some good ways to do that? What I love to do is warm up with something creative every morning. And what's interesting about the work I've been doing for more than 10 years, teaching people how to design their life, is realizing that we're all extraordinarily creative. We often don't think of ourselves as creative, but we are. So one of the things that I do is remind people that we are creative and starting our day with some creativity, which could be journaling, playing a musical instrument for 10 minutes, singing in the shower, drawing something, taking a photograph and sending it to someone. All these things get us started, warmed up for creativity for the rest of our day. My wife occasionally listens to my podcast, so I just want to point out I will not sing in the shower. <laughs> but I, I'll take some of the other options to do my warning, <laughs> morning warm up. But I, I think that's such an important thought. And it's something that jumped out to me as well, that sometimes we try to get into creative mode right away and having time to warm up can be really, really useful. Absolutely. And even for our work, whatever our work is, it's important to do something creative. And Rumi has a beautiful poem about this that I'll send to you afterwards because I haven't memorized it. I'm not good at reciting poems in the moment, but the gist of the poem is when you wake up empty and with fear in your heart. And I, when I first read that, I thought Rumi, <laughs> the Sufi poet woke up with fear in his heart. And he says, before you open the door to the study, pick up your musical instrument. So th this is not a new lesson. This is an old lesson. <laughs> As many are. Yes. So in a long life, what makes multi-generational friendships so valuable? And how can people cultivate more of them? This is something that we learned from a participant who came to our workshop and said, I cultivate friends who are nine years younger and nine years older than myself. And she was in her 60s. 
And that lesson stuck with us. And of course, nine years is a placeholder, but it really points to an intergenerational friendship. And what's beautiful about that is at the end of our research, we realized the number one lesson we learned from this year-long study was that we're same, different. No matter what our age, we want the same things. We want love, purpose, well-being, and friendship in our lives. Lives. How we get to them differs from generation to generation. And so one of the things that we, we found out is actually people in their 20s and people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s are more similar than different. But they are different, of course. But that similarity allows them to understand each other. And the differences allows them to learn from each other. So it's actually a great way to think about friendships and look for those younger and older people. And so when I put this to practice in my own life, I realized that I have a lot of older friends, but I don't have many younger friends. And so now I've become much more intentional about cultivating young friends. The last two and a half years, I've been part of a group that started with the Encore Network. And this group of 12 people, multi-generational, it's called a multi-generational roundtable, get together about every six weeks, started during COVID, and discuss different issues. And the whole roundtable changed when we brought in younger, younger folks. I love the Encore organization. It's in the work they do in multi-generational collaboration and friendship and communities. Absolutely. Yes, they focus their whole attention to co-generate yeah. to, to really multi-generational. Co-generate, exactly. Their networks, they're shifted. We were a separate rural group that broke off prior to that, but it's been good to see the focus on that. But it's a very rich experience, as you mentioned. One last question. Sometimes people are very intrigued by the concept of designing their life but they maybe have some hesitation. What advice would you give people who are interested, but maybe hesitating about not going forward with a process like like you run? I've been thinking about this because I've been doing it for so many years and that allows me to like distill the idea of designing your life. And I find that every couple of years, I'll realize, oh, this is what I'm doing. So What I realized a couple months ago was designing your life is really all about learning to be an optimist. And it's no more complicated than that. And I am a pessimist, (laughs) I'll admit it. And I grew up in a family of lawyers and lawyers are, they're trained to be pessimists because they have to think about the worst case scenarios. So my dad was a lawyer. And I realized one day that I am a pessimist every morning. I wake up and I have like the worst kind of ideas and thoughts. And what helps me is being a designer. Because when you're a designer, you look at those things and you go, oh, great, I have some problems. I can solve them. And so all I do is I provide people with some creative tools to turn their pessimism into optimism. It's just called design the life you love. Well said. Thank you for sharing that. Really captures the essence of it. And I know that'll be helpful to many people listening. Thank you so much for taking the time for this conversation. Really appreciate your insights. Joe, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Time to compare notes on takeaways. What jumped out to you from this conversation that you can apply? 
here are three ideas. Number one, start with optimism. You really do, as she pointed out, need that mindset to plan and design your future. But what if you're not naturally wired that way? What if you're not an optimistic type? Well, one of the best books I've ever read is Learned Optimism, written by Martin Seligman, University of Pennsylvania. And it's not a new book, came out in the 90s. And I'll include a link in the show notes to an article that summarizes his approach, basically about explanatory style, how you explain to yourself things that happen. Very practical, very useful, and a game changer. So start with optimism. Number two, get creative about your future. There are a lot of possibilities. And I particularly liked her point about don't necessarily do it alone. Thinking like a designer really means collaborating with others. So think about who's your team, who can you collaborate with to design your future. Number three, remember to design for what you want to avoid. I thought this is such a key point. It's one thing that I'm going to start to emphasize and pay more attention to in my coaching work with clients. What are the things that you want to not have as part of your future? What are the things you want to try to avoid, to trim back, cut back, or eliminate? So keep that in your list as well as play both offense and defense to your planning. Thanks for listening to the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. You can find all our episodes at our website, retirementwisdom.com. There are six seasons there. I like to think of it as a free retirement school. You can browse for the different guests that we've had the privilege of talking with or different topics. We try to cover a range of topics there. And it's all designed to help you retire smarter by paying attention to both sides of the retirement equation, how you invest your money and how you will invest your time.